Alexander Salkine presents Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor. Uh, watch the trees. As you've never seen them before. With more action. More twists. You're going to go down in history as the man who killed Superman. No. And more fun. Oh, I'm sorry. Than Superman has ever had before. <laughs> Superman 3. Rated PG. Starts Friday, June 17th. Things that I've seen. Is it my life or just something I dream? Resume. Noun. One. A summing up. Summary. Two. A brief written account of personal, educational, and professional qualifications and experience. Following a lengthy hiatus between months beginning with a J and not the close ones, we finally return with a new episode covering June of 1983. A friend of mine had at least one of the adventures of Kool-Aid Man adversatinal comics produced by Marvel, seemingly with moonlighting Archie talent, and maybe they still had some Millie the Model veterans on staff. I tossed through the things, but I'm not sure anybody ever read them, though they certainly held more immediate appeal than the Radio Shack giveaways. I also think I saw a copy of AmeriComics number 3 at a flea market shop within a few years of its release, and I have to assume... I'd already picked up a few coverless charlatans by that point in order for me to recognize off-label Blue Beetle. I recall flipping through the Superman 3 movie adaptation with the Kurt Swan art at a mall bookstore and saying nah to both the comic and the flick. I did eventually start watching it during its ABC TV broadcast, but I don't think I actually finished it. My, how the Man of Steel had fallen in my esteem from the Superman number 1 Treasury Edition. The Comic Reader Resume podcast to date have been revised and expanded from the original blog post I began, God help me, nearly a decade ago. The podcast is more thoroughly re- researched and has reached back further into my lifespan as a fan. Given that I first wrote the post in 2011 and didn't often remember the times when I would circle back to earlier material, I've assumed omissions that were later proven to have had delayed coverage on the blog. So I'm going to try to integrate that into the podcast. And speaking of the famous first editions, I've mentioned Jim Co a number of times here. The retail chain turned out the lights in 1986, but even before that, my family's store of choice was Kmart. Many a blue light special was announced as I considered such fine and or heavily discounted toys as G.I. Joe, Masters of the Universe, Mego Pocket Heroes, and especially the various cheapskate Remco lines. Dukes of Hazard, The Warlord, American Defense, Crystar Crystal Warrior, The Karate Kid, etc. We went to Kmart seemingly every Saturday, if only to pick up my grandmother's prescriptions from the pharmacy. Jimco is only an occasional stop, and I loved them because their toy selection was completely different, and often amounted to out-of-date clearance items that Kmart had already dumped. Similar to how only Toys R Us seemed to have Remco's Universal Monsters and Woolworths had Sergeant Rock and Mighty Crusaders, Jimco was my Raiders of the Lost Ark jam. Unlike any of those other three, Jimco had fully stocked spinner racks like the mall bookstores, and only Jimco had remandered Treasury Editions collecting dust. Actually, now that I've done that whole spiel, I think it was Woolworths that had those treasuries. Jimco was always brightly lit, and Woolworths was always dim, and I remember those treasuries being in a shadowy spot. Eh, I'm keeping the script as it is. Sometime in late 82 or 83, I had the opportunity to buy one, and only one Treasury Edition. I'm uncertain of the selection, but I'm pretty confident Batman number one wasn't part of it, as it would have provided serious competition. Detective Comics number one might have been there, but with only one Batman story and a bunch of plain clothes ballast, that one would have been easily forgotten. I'm pretty sure one of the two Wonder Woman reprints was there, which would have been awesome to read, but a combination of creaky Harry G. Peter art, Greco-Roman bondage fantasy, and the sheer girlishness
this probably wasn't an easy sell to a kid. I suspect All-Star Comics number three was there, but to be honest, I thought the Justice Society of America looked like a bunch of lame weirdos back then, even after exposure to Ordway on All-Star Squadron. The Flash's tin pan hat was a deal breaker on its own, but the gimp mask creepiness of the Atom, Iron Man's bumblebee color scheme, Sandman's clunky gas mask, and the amateur dorkiness of the rest made it a no-go. Wiz Comics number two might have also been there, but I never favored the fake Superman over the real one, and it had the same problem as action number one of featuring one superhero story and a bunch of other junk. My ultimate choice was clear. Famous first edition number nine, reprinting Superman number one. I loved that book to pieces, literally. Despite my affection for the movies, between them, reruns of the George Reeves TV show, the contemporaneous comics, and even the cartoons, the man still seemed kind of wussy. He had so much power that he used so unimaginatively against clearly inferior opponents. In the treasury, though, I saw the seminal, primal Superman of Siegel and Schuster. He was still powerful, but more on a level of a Spider-Man type, although with a vastly different attitude. His opponents were still unimpressive, but his actions were not. When a knife bent against his skin or he barged through a steel door, it was realistic and he could feel the might being wielded. Schuster had a raw thrust to his work just detailed enough to be tangible while clearly representing only a snapshot of figures in motion. As great as it is to fly, Superman leaping really high and running across power lines better suited me. I still occasionally have dreams of jumping up and briefly soaring low in the air, Matrix style, then landing to do it again. I don't think that's a Freudian sex thing, since I'm perfectly happy to have those represented graphically. I think it's more like a temporary, believable escape from the bonds of reality. Plus, I'm probably afraid of falling from a great height without any external support. Superheroes have more faith in superpowers than I do. Also worth noting is that on the rare occasions I do of flight, it's often star brand style upright practical levitation. Maybe you have some sort of subconscious Peter Pan no homo aversion. Seriously though, why would you take a swimming position? Are aerodynamics all that important for the suspension of disbelief when it comes to unaided flight? Part of the joy with the treasury was that Superman would overcome any obstacle, whereas I'd grown up with him having the off button of kryptonite that saw him consistently crumble like a house of cards in a stiff wind. Nothing could stop this Superman, which was a thrill, but the creator still found ways to create tension. For instance, an innocent woman is set to die at midnight, so Superman Superman races against the clock ticking away in caption boxes to gather defense to save her. Realistically, Superman could have just pulled her out of the cell first, but shut up already. It was cool. In another story, a war prophet here is taken to join an undercover Superman on the front lines. You experience the guy's terror, as well as satisfaction is being made to realize the means by which he is turning a buck. Wife beaters are easily straw men, and Superman pounding him was somewhat sadistic at its core, but glazed in wholesome morality and, forget them, they deserve it, vigilantism. Superman was essentially a socialist bully, but it was easy to fall in line with his logic and indulge in the power fantasy. We're not all that far from 1938 that a good guy just ripping some tyrannical British millionaire type out of his office or more likely spiriting him away from his lousy golf course without hesitation or trial can't find some purchase in our weary souls. This sort of thing was clearly more satisfying than the passive authority figure Superman had become by 
folks in my circles may remember that episode of the Firewater Podcast where Rob, Shag, and I once covered the DC samplers during a four-hour descent into the dark heart of madness. But because of its personal historical significance, I'll touch on it again here. I believe that I found a copy of DC sampler number one at a flea market booth that was the closest I could get to a comic shop for years. It was a giveaway, so the price was right, but it technically wasn't a comic. Nor normal person could make the distinction since the proportions were correct and its pages were filled with super shenanigans involving hand-lettered text. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it came out on June 30th, 1983, but there's no telling how long it took to find its way to me. It was probably one of the more important single comics I've owned, since it was my first exposure to the whole DC universe at the specific point in time when I was making the transition into devoted comics collecting. Ed Hannigan isn't regarded enough for his streak of unforgettable Bronze Age covers. Somewhere around the house I have a benefit comic collecting a bunch of them, unfortunately only Marvel ones, and you can spend an afternoon trying to recall how many of them have been blatantly swiped over the years. Despite the number of characters and density of alien technology on display, the cover feels spacious and inviting, as opposed to cramped and discordant like entirely too many seen on Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. The first sampler featured mostly new art created just for the project, which by right should make it a hot commodity in the back issue market, but you can inexplicably still pick it up cheap. The entire production budget for most free sampler books over the past 20 years would probably have been paid for by what it costs to commission this one book, but that effort and expense also makes a difference between a cherished memory and some filler crud that barely registered. <coughs> Getting inside the book, following a front page meanwhile column by Dick Giordano, Jerry Ordway provided a two-page splash image promoting the All-Star Squadron. I could tell the characters were meant to be old-fashioned, but I don't know that it had a clear perception of Earth 2 at the time. They seemed a bit silly and weird, but the art was righteous, and I was intrigued by the more X-Men-ish Infinity Inc. I ended up buying a few issues of All-Star Squadron off the stands, and have more terrible copies of Infinity Inc. in my long boxes based on the intrigue inspired by fresh pieces like this. To be honest, another series promoted in this spread come close to living up to their promise, but I still came to love the historical and legacy aspects of this Justice Society. Next, there were two pages covering pretty much every Superman-related comic in as uninspired a fashion as Gil Kane was capable of underselling. There's six panels of melodramatic elements involving Superman's supporting cast that as a young comic reader familiar with Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen from outside media, I found absolutely uninteresting. A sizable percentage of the first page and almost the entirety of the second is solid black, and on the right side with minuscule five-pointed stars containing Kane's barely drawn headshots of such lackluster luminaries as Amethyst, Blackhawk, and Santa Claus. No wonder I sought out most Superman comics until Burns Man of Steel. Arion, Lord of Atlantis, got the next spread, probably by Jan Dursima, and featuring his supporting cast and villains. Promotional images for this book were always fascinating, and I wanted to get into it, but as written by the reliably dull Paul Kupperberg, my every attempt was met with meh. My few exposures impressed me as L rank of Melbourne. The Omega Men promo, probably by Todd Smith, was exceptionally incompetent. It appears to be panels taken out of context from the book and turned into mostly silent yellow-red color holds. The ad declares the war is over, but the excitement never stops. Technically true. If the excitement ever started, it therefore can't stop. There's a Catman and some energy beings and some hulking bald naked aliens. Who knows? Who cares? This sucks. Anything Omega is inherently cool. Chuck Hiss and Swipe be damned. And I like the idea of a finite intergalactic war along the lines of Star Wars and Dreadstar. Too bad Omega Men was so much less than its contemporaries. Don Heck drew a late Bronze Age Wonder Woman spread that looked like it covered Silver Age material decades too late, complete with goofy unscientific tech and green-skinned bug-eyed 50s alien invaders with the athletic builds of Simpsons characters. I'm pretty sure that's the TSR-80 whiz 
kids having a cameo back there. A quarter page is devoted to the backup feature Huntress, just to remind everyone why this book hadn't been canceled yet. Jim Aparo's Batman received a combo short story slash spread of catching the Joker and his gang during a robbery, which the Dark Knight would normally do on his own, but I guess the help of the outsiders is why it's a short story. I'm reminded that they did cancel my favorite Batman purchase, The Brave and the Bold, to make room for another ex-wannabe team book, which would ultimately diminish my Cape Crusader collecting and voice one of comics' worst groups onto the public. Ernie Colon's Amethyst, Princess of Jim World, served as a seven-panel trailer for the miniseries, with an extraordinarily ornate border that looks like your great-aunt's most pimped-out serving tray. High fantasy meets high tea? Amethyst was bursting out of an energy portal, her green supporting cast in tow. There are some nifty designs here, and I continue to regret never giving her book a serious chance. I could see picking this up at the time if I could have ever found any, but by the time I could, Amethyst's moment had passed, specifically the moment she raw debuted a couple years later. I was most interested in the George Perez New Teen Titans spread, and all the questions it posed. Nobody inks Perez like Perez, who would have been an all-time embellisher even if he didn't become one of the most beloved pencilers of all time. Between Trigon, Deathstroke the Terminator, and the foreshadowing of the Adrian Chase Vigilante, this is a better ad than most, even if purely based on antagonistic cameos. This was followed by a cute promo in which the GI Combat creative team were lined up for execution by firing squad. Nothing says the new DC, there's no stopping us now, like Robert Kaniger and Joe Kubert dragging Sergeant Rock and Easy Company through their tired paces nearly 40 years after World War II to compete with Marvel's G.I. Joe, a real American hero, which played out about as well as the competition between the respective toy lines. Yeah, Sergeant Rock had a toy line. Google it for the makings of a dank, the toys that made us meme. World's Finest Comic was the one team-up book I mostly passed on, so I can't explain why DC gave up two pages to one week title with one image each page. One of Superman and Batman, and the other of silhouetted Micronauts rejects their schedule to fight. Despite reams of overheated solicitation copy, nobody was buying what DC was overselling. I got a bigger kick out of Keith Giffen and Larry Malstead, offering silent panels of Legion of Superheroes action married to semi-obscure old DC logos. Secrets. Mystery in space. Young love. It did nothing to satisfy my curiosity about the 30th century, since I never could find the dang book. The desire to explore was instilled by this ad to find them someday, though. And Giffen was at the peak of his commercial Perez riffing style before his obsession with Jose Munoz imploded his career. Every panel is probably sourced from the comics, but they look so appealing that it inversely works as well here, as it failed to launch Omega Men. There's a reason why DC has spent decades trying to recapture the magic of this specific period of Legion, most recently in the Bendis book relaunch. I don't know who inked Carmine Infantino's Flash spread, maybe Roden Rodriguez, but it's exceptionally appealing for the artist's latter period. The ad did a good job of recapping the extended story arc involving the reverse Flash's murder of Iris West, attempted murder of Barry Allen's new fiancé, and the Scarlet Speeder's resultant murder trial for killing Professor Zoom. I never liked speed powers, but it makes Run's fast man look a lot more interesting than he deserves. In another case of false advertising, Arak Son of Thunder got a spread by Ron Randall during his Mohawk phase, where he grabbed a satanic entity by the horn while swinging through the air and brandishing a tomahawk. It's so Frazetta airbrushed on the side of a van with blacked out windows. I eventually read a few Arak's, and they came across more like Prince Valiant. In a bizarre choice, there's also a monochromatic sliver outside the Arak image's border promoting Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew in its final months. Maybe that was a tell to take the Arak image with a grain of salt. An under-embellished Supergirl was being done by Paul Kupperberg and Carmine Infantino at the time, which meant her spread was like the anti-flashes. It was a series of panels that made the Maid of Might look ridiculous, being miniaturized, multiplied, and sucked up in a vacuum cleaner by cornball villains. Why were the DC titles for heroines slogging through Mort Weisinger plots years after they'd put him into a plot? In direct contrast, Pat Broderick was completely forgiven for inserting himself in an oddly tubby Jerry Conway into a spread for The Fury of Firestorm the Nuclear Man, because his detailing on characters like Takamak and Flameberg was glorious. I'll never understand why an artist as intricate and influential as Broderick wasn't a bigger name, and I enjoyed him both on Firestorm and Captain Adam. What a great parting shot from a book that may have cost DC a fortune with no great 
great short-term gain, but paid off dividends in softening my heart to their wages for decades afterward. If you were keeping score, DC's sampler was like high school sex, where the legion of superheroes I wanted I couldn't get, and the world's finest I could get I didn't want. No wonder all us Marvel zombies just dipped in for new Teen Titans. Speaking of, the New Teen Titans Annual Number 2 was a huge book for me. It was the debut of the Reganera Vigilante, who I immediately recognized as a Punisher knockoff. However, Punisher appearances were few and far between back then, so he was sort of like Chuck Bronson to tide you over between Clint Eastwood movies. The Titans were comparatively hardcore in The Murder Machine, as they pushed the boundaries of heroism in their dogged pursuit of justice for a friend's family's murder by mobsters. It was essentially my introduction to the type of grim and gritty superheroes that would dominate the 90s. Wolfman clearly relished getting nasty and playing around with the darkest tropes of old-school gangster flicks. I especially love the game of Ding Dong Ditch. Perez was at his most cinematic and detailed, finally with a quality inker and Pablo Marcos for a tour de force. It's basically the running man by way of The Godfather, but with cooler stalkers and less puns. Also, Cheshire is a total trade-up over Maria Conchito Alonso. Besides looking amazing and being lethal as hell, the comic finally offered me, and likely a generation of haters, a version of Robin to cheer on. One of my favorite comic moments was when Robin plays at Intimidation in a restaurant, kicking a bodyguard in the face with his little green booty. The mobster's bimbo says something like, I always thought he was a boy but he's a man. If only Nightwing had followed through on that observation instead of being zero-calorie Daredevil. I love the heck out of this book, and I still have most of my original copy, although some of it is in pieces. The story ensured a loyalty to the Titans that would make me a hardcore DC fan in the 90s, although DC shot itself in the foot soon afterwards by making it direct sales only at a time when the newsstand was my only regular source of new comics. If the Vigilante spinoff had been anywhere near this good, it might have generated the kind of heat the 1987 Stephen Grant Mike Zek Punisher miniseries enjoyed. Heck, if Titans had stayed this good, it could have used that same heat in 1987 its own self. Folks who want to see our resume include Adriano, All the Pouches and Image Comics Podcast, Dr. Ange, Billy at Excelsior 73, Chris at Back Books for Beginners, Chris Botito, Coffee and Comic, Collected Editions, Comics in the Golden Age, DeBeige, Doc Strange, Ed Moore, Feliz Navidad Dinosaur, Firestorm Fan, History of Comics on Film, Paul Hicks, Into the Weird, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Jeffrey Brown, Keechi Baker, Kirk Spencer is Not a Robot, Yet, Cristados, The Liquid Awesome, Lisa Franklin, Lauren Skin Kiss Art, Mirna Loy, Odell Admiral Dragon, Rad Adventures, Richard G, Roberto Azuaje, Ryan Daly, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Slangward Scott, Superbound, Tim Price, Podcrasher, Tom Beach, Trekker Talk, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Doug Zuisha. Odell Labner Dracula wrote, The solitary fan pun made me laugh while in rush hour traffic. Quite a feat. He also sent us a doodle of a little stick man in the midst of a empty group therapy session, it seemed like, singing Sweet Caroline, bum, bum, bum. Super Duper Sword Box wrote, Fun 
one post, I like the creature commandos with GI Robot, new to me. Yet it sounds depressing, doesn't it? Probably great, though. The original Shag wrote, I continue to love these resume posts. My own early exposure to Alpha Flight was hearing friends talk enthusiastically about the stories, so these adventures took on a mythological quality for me. Same for the early Teen Titans. By the time I read them myself, I had been programmed to love them. I love the All-Star Squadron at first sight. Jerry Ordway is a master to me. However, even in my youth, I recognized the tarantula costume looked too cool and modern to have premiered in the 1940s. Keep up the great posts. Searching my mind for some truth to reveal What thoughts are fantasy, what memories real Believe it or not, George isn't at home Please leave a message at the beep I must be out before I pick up the phone. Where could I be? <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm not home.